1: Debut Podcast Series 2 with me, Charles McGarry. A few years back, around the time I signed a publishing deal with Berlin for my first Leo Moran murder mystery, The Ghost of Helen Addison, a different publisher, Backpage Press, decided to produce a podcast about my journey from bedroom to bookshelf. It was called Simply Debut, and as fate would have it, Backpage publishing my third Leo Moran book, The Mystery of the Strange Piper, which comes out on September the 16th, 2021. Debut was steered by Neil White, and now I am taking over the reins and plan on chatting with other authors about their initial forays into a career of crime writing. Today I am joined by the highly talented Alan Parks, author of the wonderful Harry McCoy series of Detective fiction which are set in the grimy, gloomy Glasgow of the 1970s. There are now four Harry McCoy novels out there, but in keeping with the pod's theme, we are here to discuss the first one, Bloody January, which was released at the end of 2017. How do I describe Alan's debut? How about gloriously gritty and brilliantly bleak? Welcome and thank you for joining us. As I was preparing for a WeChat, I learned a new word. Ah. And the word is epigraph. The epigraph being the quote that novelists often place before the start of the story. I, I didn't know that. Right, well I didn't know. It's, everything's got, this is the thing as a writer, you find it that everything's got a name. Everything in the world, you know. <laughs> Most, you just don't need to know it, but then if you write books, you do need to know it. You, I think you actually had two. One was Aristotle, and one, but the one that floated my boat was Rod Stewart. I knew that I was going to love Bloody January as soon as I saw one of my favourite Rod Stewart songs in the quote in the epigraph Every picture tells a story. Music plays quite a big part in the book. There's a brilliant, vivid des- depiction of a Rod Stewart, performing with the Faces, I think it's at the Apollo, Alan, is that right? Yes,
0: Yeah, I am sadly old enough to remember the Apollo, so I think that's where I saw um, the first concert I ever went through, which I think was, God, it was Elvis Costello, The
1: Police and the Cramps, I think, or maybe John McClark, yeah, but that's really how old I am. It was quite a place. Uh, You wouldn't have been old enough to have seen the Faces.
0: No, no, that one, that one I would be about, I'll still have where it 16 or something like that, right. so I think I was going kind to of
1: first time. Because I think I like, you had to be 18, I suppose, a or over 16 or something, there something about it, I think, because it was maybe licensed. It's a thing that just passed me by, and it's just a legendary uh, venue that you hear people talking about, and you just wish you could have uh, experienced it. Um, also, David Bowie gets a wee cameo in the book um, Yeah, that's
0: that's me um, already starting to tamper with the past Because <laughs> that didn't actually happen on the day in, um, That I say it did So I had to move them three days
1: mm-hmm.
0: Because um, I wanted to put it in um, So I thought if I move it three days It's not the end of the world, you know So, uh, But yeah, that's where the line starts
1: One of my favourite TV shows is Life on Mars Do you remember Life on Mars? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah Which is set in the same era, they used a beautiful, I don't know which model of Cortina it was, uh, uh, but that kind of bronze-coloured Cortina, um, uh, which was so iconic at the time, and then Jeremy Clarkson dug them up because it was apparently, it wasn't in, that model wasn't in production until the following year or something, uh, and the, yeah. the guy, Philip <laughs> to the actor, he just, well and so many words told them where to go, you know, it's, it doesn't matter man, you know. It's quite a difficult one, you, you sort of,
0: I think you have a kind of duty to make it as accurate as possible, otherwise you just fall into kick a kind of hole where you can make anything up. But you know, the occasional wrong car or wrong date of the Apollo, I don't think really changes what the story's about, you know what I mean? I think you've got shoe hooked up in it and all that sort of peripheral stuff and essentially, You don't need
1: to, you know, it's not the important thing about the story, you know, so... There's a scene in the Glasgow City Halls in one of my books, and for I took a wee bit of artistic licence and had steps outside, like exterior steps leading up to the door. Oh! And I think that was the only thing I lied about in the book. And, somebody, <laughs> and I was at a book group one time someone dubbed me up for it you know yeah, <laughs> so well, you know what you
0: do there's always as, as uh, Smith used to say there's always um, the big nose and nose, you know, people always get you you know the Amic you know someone gleefully told me a motorway wasn't there at that point and that the number 17 didn't go through Saris <laughs> and, uh, you, you know you got a big list of them and uh, I don't really mind you know I, I think you'd be fooling yourself that you get every single thing right but um you know, it's, it's, And I'll say, oh, yeah, well, I'll end it in the next edition thinking I've forgotten already, you know, but
1: there you go. So, um, yeah, some people do get very kind of caught up in those kind of things, yeah. Oh. Um, the reason I was going on about Rod Stewart and music in the book is it really is a kind of preamble because I know music played a massive part in your pre-crime writing life. So before, <laughs> we, before we dive into the book itself, can you tell me a bit about that past life and how you went from it to becoming a published crime writer?
0: Uh, well, as everything, it's a kind of series of sort of strange coincidences. You know, people, I think when you're younger, unless you have a real vocation, you know, you desperately want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist, you know, you kind of one more jobs, um, you kind of fall into things pretty much, you know. You sort of, there's not really that much planning. Well, there wasn't, when I was young, because things were a bit easier, you know, it wasn't quite so difficult to get a job or things were quite so expensive and you could, you know, get away with it a bit more. So I went to university in, um, in Glasgow and um the guy called Lloyd Cole, who was Lloyd in Commotions, was mm-hmm. in my class and that was a guy called Dave McKillop. And Dave left to manage Lloyd, I think when we were in third year <laughs> I can't remember. And then um when I left, they had an office in Glasgow in Hope Street. And of course, you know, it was all London, you know, and then this was the time before the time of kind of easy communication. So we them down to London every five minutes, you know. So um so when they were away, I sort of the office. Um, sort of answered the phone to all Japanese fans and so on. So, um that was that was kind of how I started working there and then we all moved to London and they started a bigger management company. We worked, we managed some other bands and the big dish and and then um London Records, which at that time was a kind of a dance label, really. It was a kind mm-hmm. of Northern House label for, weirdly, um, which I was obviously disparaging about because you didn't do proper albums of you know, grammar school rock. So um, uh, they, they went and asked me to come and work for them. Um, and it was such an odd choice that I, was kind of just, I kind of quite fancied it, you know what I mean? It was kind of just not what you wanted to do. Sure. So I went and worked there as creative direction, which meant you... you um, Commissioned the artwork, the videos, and the photos, and some of the marketing, that sort of stuff, not the a And um, that went on, and that, that was the nature of things in was days. Everything there, so London became part of the Universal, then became part of Warner's. I ended up being creative director of Warner Music UK, which was a much bigger, um, wider uh, kind of remit. You know, they had Enya, mm-hmm. and The Streets, and All Saints, and New Order. You know, Pretty big bands. Yeah, they've they got a different day. so after I have ended up doing that for almost 20 years, I think. Yeah, and then it started, you know, the money started running out, and um, they started to get rid of a lot of people, you know, they couldn't pay for it, and they couldn't really pay for videos anymore, and it got so inductive that the amount of money you had to do artwork or, you know, videos and things was kind of making it pretty impossible to do anything on the absolute old standards, you know. Mm-hmm. So um just sort of, well, I got made redundant, and of course, I should get made redundant two days later and said we come back and work, you know, so um, I ended up working three days a week in London and going up and down the train. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of started writing little bits and balls, I'd for different things, and you know, nothing really for anything other than my own amusement really, but I had the sort of bones of, of the first book. I kinda had and so I thought I can go up and down the train and basically look out the window and fall asleep, which is mostly what happened, but or I could um, try and use this or five hours each way to try and do a bit of work on this stuff. So nice. I started doing that there and did it yeah, but it was it was not a very I wasn't the cool i book. I mean it was weeks and weeks, and weeks and I didn't do anything, you know, you know, I just forgot about it. It was just a kind of something I did every so often on the train. Mm-hmm. And eventually I kinda finished it and um it was, it was done, and uh, I didn't really do anything with it, you know, I just went, oh, that's done now, put it away. And um, I didn't really, I don't know, I sort of, I'd sort, of, sort of done it for my own interest, if you know what I mean. I wasn't sure. like, oh God, please, how can I get this published, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I was doing, I mean, weirdly, you know, John Niven, the, the, the novelist that I worked with at London, you know, it was kind of strange, you've got tiny office to it, you know, you end up writing books, but there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, at that point, had written, Kill Your Friends. Mm-hmm which was um, his first book, which was a kind of extremely, thinly disguised version of London. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and uh, we were writing, I can't remember what it was, it was something for TV I was doing with him. And he said to me, oh, you should write a book. And of course I said, well, I have. And um, he sort of looked at me horrified. And uh, he said, well, do you want me to read it? And I thought, well, OK, if you want, you know, sort of slightly resentfully. And... Um, he went and read it and he came back and he said, You know, it's not that bad, uh-huh. but, you've, but you've got one and a half books. Uh-huh. He said, You've got one book and half of another one, you need to get rid of this. It was a huge other kind of story. Uh-huh. And so I chopped all that out. And then he said, Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll give it to my agent, she so thinks. He gave it to his agent and she didn't like it. And I kind of thought, Oh, well, that's the end of that. And then uh, Nick went, No, no, I'm sure this is something. So he. He gave it to his friend Sarah Pinkbauer, who's another writer, a uh, big, big writer, um, wrote that behind your eyes thing and a lot of different things. And um, she liked it, and she said, "Well, I know an agent that would like it," and she gave it to that agent, and he took it on. So I kind of, I'm almost like, horrified telling the story because it's just nepotism at large, mm-hmm. you know. And I know how people find it extremely difficult to get the work. You know, even in front of people down are mind, you know, the agents or something. And such, you know? So I always got a bit a bit
1: of a a bit of a fraud when when I tell people how it happened, you know, it was a bit um, but it's amazing that, you know, that whole process of uh, rejection and perseverance, you know, that almost all writers have to go through, you know, more or less bypass that. It's kind of what-
0: Funny thing is, you know, it's as often in life, it's a thing you, know, you think about yourself. It, sort of, you know, I was like, oh, okay. You know what i like I wasn't like, oh my God, you know, this is my life's work. I must be sure. doing another agent age, and you know, I was kind of, like, well, we gave up. It wasn't quite worrying, you know. So, but it kind of went through, and I do feel a bit horrible about it, if I'm honest,
1: you know. But I wouldn't feel horrible <laughs> about it because I think I think you're an outstanding crime writer, and it just deserves. And it's just such an original idea, an orig- amazing setting and time, that you know it, it deserves to bypass that whole process. Why the hell not? And it's good to hear that. First, it's good to hear sometimes that a writer doesn't have to go through all that stuff because it's you know it's, everyone who's listening to this who's a, who's a writer knows how disparate that is. And, but I don't. I, I just touching on something you said there, it's a little bit like sometimes in life the things you you don't try too hard at it, you know, and something yeah. unexpected unf- falls out of it, you know.
0: I uh, know, it's weird, I'm sort of very pleased I didn't have to, because as you said, I literally cannot imagine anything more just than waiting for a to turn up saying, you know, thank you very much, but no, you know, it just must be kind of demoralising, to the least, and I'm not sure I would have gone through that process very long, I think, you know, I would have given up rather than, yeah. you know, I know everyone keeps going all the time, because I'm sort of the author, I'm not you know, so I'm not sure I would have had the kind of, the will or the kind of abilities to do the in the face, you know, for 50 sure. rejection letters or something, so, you know, I suppose it's just different, different, perhaps different ways for different people, but, you know, mine is a kind of, uh, a sort of dream scenario, so I'm sort of aware that that's really not most people's you know, experience, so, you know, you have to be a bit more sympathetic. I
1: mean, it's great for the purpose of this podcast because it's such an untypical story. Uh, you know, that is what we're inter- focused on, is the is that journey from uh, bedroom to bookshelf, or in your case, uh, the Glasgow to London train the bookshelf? <laughs> I, you know,
0: weirdly, it's a bit like recording records you know, or, or, or musicians. You never imagine themselves being thumping the bill at the Frog and fucking you, know? mm-hmm. you know, they always imagine themselves going, "Oh, I'll be," you know, Albert yeah. Hall and stuff. So where it's kind of easier to imagine everyone going, "Oh, your book's great," than the sort of reality of it, which is not, not at all. You know, so, when they said, "Oh, we want to publish it," I said, "All right, that's great." Thinking, mm-hmm. well,
1: you know, mm-hmm.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> so um, you know, it's kind of weird. So you got your agent. You got the second agent that it was shown to.
0: He was he just phoned up and said, You know, are you right? and um, was like, eh, do you wanna, you know, come on board and all that and of course yeah, well, you know, you it's a bit like bands with the record contract stats the sat for you say do you know what I mean? So I didn't think, Are you a good agent? Are you a bad agent? Am I doing a terrible thing? I thought, like, Oh yeah, go play my site right. You know, so now I've got an agent. But luckily that was he was a good agent, so it wasn't that wasn't a disaster, but you know, so yeah, we got him and um, he started sending it to people. And Canongate and weirdly Europa Editions who publish like Elsa Ferranti and, you know, these sort of slightly more sort of highbrow European sort of novels and stuff. Are both very interesting. And Canongate, I also was, you know, a kind of good company. Plus they had off season Edinburgh. You know, they published um not originally obviously but they published uh, you know the issues of labor and the McLean stuff and, You know, we published a few things I really liked, so they seemed a good option. So we thought, well, you know, Europa dishes actually offered, I shouldn't say, more money, but they were in New York and Italy, and I was like, well, I can't really, you know, what am I supposed to do with a publishing in New York and Italy? Do you know what I mean? So I went through to see Canongate. You find out, or I found out, the structure of deals and the structure of how it works is very like the companies. You get paid the same way, you get in advance, you get couped you know it's it's um you do a hard back, you know it's and it, it, it just the organization of it is quite similar you know you do the press of the head you know the events and everything and what you kind going of to learn or what i can kind of learn in the rest company was the bands that do well really to a large extent do all do off their own back you know they sort of are more proactive mm-hmm. You know, some, some bands think, well, I'm saying, record, mate. I'm doing nothing about making a record, you better make it a success. Mm-hmm. And you kind of think, well, do you know what, mate? I'm not sure that's going to happen because there's lots of good records every year, you know. And, you know. So I think you kind of realise that it's a, a competition in a horrible way, but it's a crowded area, you know, and it's mm-hmm. hard to, to get your, your stuff to you kind know, of stick its head above the parapet. So, Karen disappointedly, said to you, and they said how do you feel about promotion? and, you know, doing press and all that sort of stuff, and was like, to do it, will be fantastic. You know, you have to be prepared to kind of sell yourself a bit, and sell the book, which some people, rightly, find that sort of and they just don't want to do it. You know, you're going to have to join the commercial world a little bit, you know, and then try and help yourself, and help the publishers sell the book a bit. So, if anyone is just in that situation, tell the publisher to yes, do press, you'd love to do everything. You do everything when you start out, you know, and you keep doing it. Until you know, you, you, you sort of uh, hopefully become big enough to slightly call the shots a little bit more and decide that you'd like to do less films, but more But also, to be honest, doing these things, I quite enjoy because apart from anything else, it gets you out sure of the house, which yeah. I think is really banal. But, you know, just you're sitting over there at it's quite nice to talk to someone on the phone or go to, I don't know, you know, bloody Scotland or something in France or something, you know, when, when you just get, up and get stuff done, really. So that was kind of the mechanics of it
1: happens really mm-hmm. just reflecting a couple of things you said that you can get stuck crazy as a writer and as it, it does create a bit of variety to your writing career and doing a lot of these events mm-hmm. and interviews and things and very often writers just by their nature are quite introverted you're know, quite reflective people and yet then they have to go out and do promote themselves yeah. you're describing and uh, obviously you're not that type of person you obviously have a you know, working in the music industry and that, that you, 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 know, you don't have a problem with that. I would say I'm somewhere in between. Part of me finds yeah. it a bit intimidating, but once I kind of give myself the push, you kind of just get into the rhythm of it, and you just think, well, you know, all you can do is speak your truth. And just, uh, you know, be your best. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, you know when you, when you, I remember the first thing I ever did, which weirdly was at Edinburgh Book
0: Festival, which is quite a big thing. And you know, it's a big turn, it was like 50 people in it, and you get biked up and all this. And I kind of thought, you know, I could either, this is the first time I've done this, I could either get worried about it and spend the next, you know, five years of my life worrying about every little thing I do, or just do it and not worry, you know, and just go, well, you know, it's a little, it's, it's, nobody's going to care, you know, it's like, why worry about it, you know? And I think, I think that was a good decision because it could have gone the other way, you know, you start obsessing at these things, but I think largely just do it and move on is kind of mad, you know it's not it's not it's not i mean i know a, a lot of people would find it more difficult than i do but i i would not like it if i wasn't talking about my book well, i actually had to do two good the best man speaking and it was the i mean literally the worst experience of my life i threw up before both of them you know i couldn't do it and uh-huh. i think there's a big difference between that and, and, and talking about your book because you know i'm fairly confident talking about the book because I know about it I know what I'm doing. but you know, on a, a more general thing I wouldn't really be as as confident of doing that, you know. So there's a lot of kind of sticks read about the book you know, and, and, and the director which writing is kind of okay, really. And to be honest, most people are very amiable.
1: They're not there to try and catch out. And also people who go exactly. to book events and stuff, they're enthusiasts. It's, it's, it's actually
0: quite a friendly atmosphere rather than a sort of in position, which I think a lot of people think it is.
1: You sometimes worry that because you're a quote unquote writer, that there's an, yeah. there's an assumption that you're an expert at all things, you know. Oh, and, no. I, I, and the, you know, that's going. the thing I may be dread a little bit. And it's also the fact I don't have that great recall, as we've kind of discussed before we uh. start the interview. Quite often it takes me a while to remember a, a name or a book or whatever. And, you know, with the joys of the internet, you can check things right away. We can't do that yeah. in of, of a conversation, you know. Uh.
0: Especially
1: in France, I think they still think all writers are intellectuals. Just to talk about the book a little bit, I mean I loved loved Bloody January. Um, In fact, Mm -hmm. I'm going to make you blush here, more than any other tartan War novel, I would say it was the one I wished I had written, right? (laughs) uh, I'm going to describe it as gloriously gritty and brilliantly Uh. bleak. Surprising to me that, because generally I shy away from the kind of raw Crime novels. In fact, that was the reason I made my Leo Moran series the polar opposite. It's more influenced <laughs> by the English Golden Age. It's got nice rural settings, beautiful things and things like that. And I I, I do feel that there's some I do criticise modern urban crime writing a bit because I think sometimes it's overly violent. Um someone once described there's a misperception around that bleak is means deep. And it doesn't, right? You know, sometimes deep things... But in bloody January, yes, there's violence, yes, there's grimness, but it never feels gratuitous. It's always kind of compelling. Can you talk a bit about the tone of the book? The funny thing is, people are all serious feeling about books. Um, You know, you start off
0: writing a book and you kind of go, "Okay, what are we doing? And the thing I've always got at the top of the page is make it grittier. Mm -hmm. Because I always think they're a bit nice. (laughs) You know, I always think they're a bit... (laughs) I never, I never think they're, they're that bad, you know, maybe that's me, but, but I'm not a big fan of um, kind of gratuitous violence things. I mm-hmm. don't really like reading it. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but there was a book I read, well, actually, I started with it, a very esteemed um, sort of Nordic training, you know, writer. And the first three pages were just this woman being, you know, battered to death in a back garden, yeah. a you know, and I was like, oh, there's something queasy about that level of violence, it just is not A, isn't, I don't think particularly necessary, and B, and I like, well think, who actually really wants to read this, you know, mm-hmm. so I just didn't really get it. So the hope is that, if there's violence in the book, that it's there to illustrate what people are like, rather than just go, oh, well, it's a gory bit, you know, and I think, realistically, if you're writing about gangsters in, in in Glasgow in the 70s, there is going to be violence. And the funny thing is, you know, it's all relatively small time, so it's all knives and fists and, and bits of wood. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not guns and, you know, assassination attempts and drive-bys. It's literally batting people, you know, which can sometimes be a little bit more visceral. But I don't, you know, I never thought that it was particularly grim. It was... I always just thought it was kind of—I I don't know—but I sort of imagined it to be sort of realistic, rather
1: than overly, you know, uh, gritty for the sake. I, I didn't really know, you know. But the the world that he, that Harry McCallie, the the hero inhabits—I mean, setting is really important in your books, and you, you're really skilled at evoking a sense of place and a sense of time. I'm just old enough to remember the Glasgow of the 1970s and especially the city centre. It made a, made an impression there was a lot of waste ground with built buildings that had been demolished. Everything was black with soot because it was before the, the sandblasting craze, you know, cleaned everything up. There seems to be a bit of a fascination with the 1970s nowadays. I'm thinking, for example, director Steve McQueen's mini-series of drama, the film Small Axe, which dealt with the, the racism immigrants had to yeah. face. And there was a lot of other dark stuff going down. There was the Troubles, there was the Cold War, the fear of nuclear annihilation. There was all the political and industrial unrest. And there's a sense that the wheels were coming off back then, and the decades seemed to contrast with the the kind of sunny optimism of the the 60s. I'm interested to know, have you you seen a book? It's It's just called Glasgow, it's a photo book. It was released not that long ago. And it's images, it was it was a French photographer, a guy called oh, yeah. Raymond Depardon. Well, yeah, Webley, those those pictures are on the front of my books in France. <laughs> is that right? Gosh. You know,
0: well was, is, yeah, Raymond Depardon. yeah, it's a really good book. It's nineteen eighty,
1: so, so it's It's nineteen eighty actually nineteen eighty, but it's essentially the same era. But yeah. the thing about that book is right, it's, it it captures all this dereliction and gloom that I'm talking about. But You've also got people, ordinary people, smiling, having fun. So I guess I've got a couple of questions spinning out of it. To what extent is setting a catalyst for your books? And were the 1970s all that bad? <laughs> well, see, you know, I sort of discovered
0: this when you do these interviews, that apparently I don't write books They're much the same as most people. I tend to... <sighs> tiny places in Glasgow that I'm interested in writing about. And um, in in Blood January um, my, my great auntie Meg lived in a high flat in Dobie's loan
1: yep. on the
0: twenty third on the twenty third floor. And when I was a wee boy I used to go there and you could see the canist bus station below you. It was like Toy Town and it was so high up. I think it was be like, of ooh all the buses you know it's all very excited. And I wanted to write about that and Words, when I was at university. Um, there was well, I wouldn't say which mm-hmm. house it was, but there was someone's house in Monkduck um, who um, is sort of near back and back of back of, Bogai, yep. of And someone I knew got a job staying at while the family was away to make sure it didn't get you know squatted or you know all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff that the kind of caretaker, And of course, what he did was then to have these huge acid parties in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and I always quite like that. So that kind of cut in a bit with the kind of, you know, the extra wild villains' house and sort of lifestyle. And, you know, I, 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 my cousins all lived in Springbourne, and Milton and, you know, Oconeer and all up that way. So, and I used to go there when I was younger and I kind of liked that area to write about. So there's a bunch of things that I kind of specifically wanted to write about. And Paddy's Market, I really wanted to write about for some then. you. Um, what I then do is find some way to connect the dots. If you know what I mean, yes. find
1: some reason for these things to happen there. So that, in a weird
0: kind of way, starts to to build your plot in a funny way because you think, why would why would he be at a crime at that? the Manchester kind of bus station? What could happen there that would the odd? order? You know, why would we be at some sort of acid party in, in in a country house? You know, so you kind of I kind of do it that way. Where you, you work out the 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 actual areas for want of a better word that you want to write about, physical areas and then you sort of find a way to, to get them in. Really. That's
1: amazing. That's amazing, right? That's so interesting and Yeah, it, it's kinda of the wrong way round, but there you go. No, but, it's, <laughs> but you know these, these places have and I know the places you're talking about and in oh. different ways they have so much personality.
0: But also glass a an exciting place. Also it's like glass. You know, it just was an incredibly exciting place to me. Yeah, still kind of is, so, yeah. you know, it, it, was, it was getting some of that, and hopefully it was, was, a,
1: was an idea. This thing about remembering, you know, about fragments from your past, and it, it fascinates me because I sometimes observe that <laughs> the, the actual creative process when I'm writing is actually remembering rather than creating. You're, you're, it's little, maybe even inane things or useless bits of information that you just kind of, that become useful to yeah. you in the plot, and it's... Um, I mean, I, in my latest book, there's this, it's set on an island called Sauna, but it's really the Isle of Buttes. And we used to go down there every year for summer holidays. And there was this house, this kind of slightly creepy house that was on this back road. And one time it was um, infested by cats. It was a kind of colony of cats. And my sister, or well, one of my sisters, she's got a phobia about cats. So from then on, it just became... The cat, the cat's house, was called the cat's house, and it was just a, a, banal childhood event. But I've used that in this, in this book. These little things you put in
0: your brain, and you don't think fifty years but they're still there, and you're starting something comes out in a book or something that's done. You know, so a lot of things you remember, are not big events, or you know, of small little incidents, or little areas, or little feelings, or you know, what someone said, or what they wore, or what they said in yeah. way and stuff. And, yeah. and that stuff, I think, fuels a lot of what went in, certainly, for the first period, You know, it was full of, you know, if you knew me, you could know, talk me through exactly where everything was and why it was there, and you know, why that bit was in there, and, you know. So you kind of, in a way, it's, it's, you know, it's not about me, it's slightly autobiographical. Yeah. A lot of the, the situations are peculiar to me that Mm-hmm. and then sort of mushed into the book so yeah I think memory just played a lot of apart and I think you know you ask about the 70s and what is so interesting about the 70s is everything seemed up for grabs in the 70s you know all art, all art was still political you know you had to have a political viewpoint you know there was three-day weeks and power cuts I remember very well and bits of national strikes mm-hmm. you know it just seemed like the sands were shifting a bit, you know. Yeah. The, things weren't quite so secure, and you know there's bombings in Ireland and the end of Vietnam, and you know it was just. And then and rock, and you know, it just everything. It was like a big seesaw. Things changed all the time, and it wasn't that. You know, I suppose as the as the as it could goes, as soon as you got to the, the early eighties, it was really just about making money and cappuccinos, You know, mm-hmm. but in the seventies, I think artistically, culturally. It was a real battle build, you know, for yeah. a lot of people. And I think that's kind of what made it interesting, with yeah. the the, the, fights, the culture wars they were fighting seemed more
1: of value. I think the people generally thought that could would be a socialist revolution, yeah. of them, you know, the, the
0: socialist party would be running. You know, they really thought it could change that much, and apparently so sort did of the establishment, you know, because they were completely paranoid mm-hmm. about it, you know. And, but it was a, a time of huge turmoil, I mean, economically and sociologically
1: and culturally, you know. Just to talk about, move on to to character a little bit, um, uh, you've got lots of very interesting characters from the great and the good, uh, the abused to the powerful. Um, The characters have got depth, they've got dimension, they live in the mind's eye. Um, As for Harry McCoy, he's to some extent an anti-hero because he's in the pocket of a gangster, right? But it's complicated. The gangster yeah. was his protector and abusive children's yeah. institution. He's, Harry suffers, he suffers from unrequited love, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> uh, he's, he's not one of these omnipotent, Dirty Harry detectives. For example, he gets a do, what they call in Glasgow a doing, he gets beaten up. Like so we, we feel we feel sympathy for the guy. He's working on both sides of the laws. But I would say that overall he's focused on solving the crime, overall he's motivated to serve the greater cause of justice, even when everyone else is giving up. Can you say a little bit about the moral ambiguity surrounding your protagonist?
0: I think the idea with him was that he'd grown up and all the institutions that were supposed to support him had failed him completely. And, um, you know, he ended up in jail, which in the 70s, as you know, is about as grim as it can get. Um, And his father was an alcoholic, you know, as he'd left him for days and ends and everything. So all the sort of people who had a duty of care to him didn't express it. And I think what that kind of done is just given him a sort of inherent distrust of authority Mm -hmm. and an inherent sympathy for people who, who he feels are being done over by. You know, greater institutions. So, his concerns are always with you know, people he thinks are being left behind or being ignored by the police. You know, mm-hmm. which is uh, often thing women or people who live on the street or you know, people who's you know, have life or chaotic life It's not what the police want to deal with. You know, and you know, there's a guy. And this is my, I can't even know which one. There's a guy with a plan who's damned at school, and keeps, who's homeless, who keeps everything in his cram,
1: and um, this is really not something that a detective in the Glasgow Police needs to be dealing with, mm-hmm.
0: but Harry knows how important this plan is to this guy, you know, and tries to sort it out him, so he's kind of, he's, his focus is probably not what his bosses he wants it to be, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. a bit stupid. but for him, those are the people that he wants to try and help you know, Masonic establishment view of the police where, you know, we keep the peace, we keep the, the
1: um, you know, we keep the status quo really and you know, so he's more he's with the people who fall through the cracks, I think. And that's largely because of his background. He's a he's that's his redeeming quote feature, is that you know, he has this empathy for the the underdog. He's a bit of an outsider because he's Nominally a Catholic, which was kind of unusual in the Peace Force in those days. Very unusual,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And my guy is, Leo Moran is a, is a devout Catholic, whereas Harry is like very much a, a lapsed Catholic, you know, he, he, he's got kind of... I've devout Catholic. Yeah, he's got kind of contempt for the priesthood and things because of the... the, the well, I, I, to be honest, I think he would if you grew up like he is, you you're not exactly going to be hugely, you know, sympathetic, I mean, sure. you know. You know? And was, was that something that, you know, making him an outsider, was was that something you did consciously, you know? Well, I, I,
0: I, it's largely because I could find a little interesting
1: place. Mm-hmm. I don't understand or
0: particularly care about mechanics or investigations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I don't know whether they spawn a murder squad, or who does that, or the CID do that. Or, you know, I just, A, I don't know, and B, I've never been that interested in finding out. So, I kinda of wanted someone who was slightly out with the normal one of the policemen because I didn't want to spend my time writing about you know, that sort of thing. So I kinda of wanted someone who was slightly operated outside the normal things and was a bit um, estranged from the rest of his colleagues, you know, and he's got a sort of he's got a, a sort of malbunctious but largely sympathetic voice. Mm-hmm. Not very dry the same but kind of sports so. him. So he's able to do that, and I think the idea was to write about a policeman who was kind of caught between the two, Who's I think he's 30 in this book, which, you know, he'd grown up in the 60s and had experienced most of the things that people we were 20 20s and 60s experienced, you know, unlike most of the policemen. So I think that also gives him a bit of an opportunity to use those connections and that sort of worldview to, to, under, to discover things that other policemen can, you know, even go places where they, where they can or be caught to by people that... We wouldn't normally talk to the police so I think the idea is to have it operate slightly, I mean in a weird way he kind of operates sort of like a private eye you know he's not yes. very caught up in the character of the police and um I think that's just because I can't really I just it's not of interest to me you
1: know, are, uh, I mean some yeah. people like the police procedural totally not, and, that, yeah. and, that's, and that's fine and you know we were talking about authenticity and um a lot of people, a lot of readers might not like, you know, if the actual kind of mechanics of an investigation isn't what it would be like in real life. But I had the same, exactly the same taste as you, and that's why I, my guy is a PI, you know, and he's, yeah. um, and you know, he's, he, he has kind of fractious or, or, or strained relationships with the police. And it means that you can, you can then investigate the crime the way you want to, which for me would be a bit more like Sherlock Holmes than, I don't know, yeah. ta- than Taggart.
0: It's just a different style, you know, I don't have it in me to do that. And uh, yeah. uh, there's a bit, you know, Liam McAvary wrote a book, he uh, set large at the same time, and, uh, which is a great book. And you can see that he's done all the research I should have done. <laughs> he, he knows what each book's called and all that sort of stuff, and it really adds to the book. Mm-hmm. But I just can't, I, I just, it's just not happening, you know, it's just a different way of approaching it. So, you know, it, it kind of, I just wanted him to have a boss, and to have a sort of, sort of, to assist and that was it, you know, that's that was enough, as far as I can see, with the sort of, these structures, really, you know, that was all you needed to know, and I didn't really want to know anyone that, you know, so,
1: I think in some ways, because it's set in the 70s, and obviously police techniques, investigative techniques were much more primitive then, it means you can bypass a lot of that stuff. Whereas nowadays, if you set a book in the present day, there's just oh so much God. stuff that you have to acknowledge. DNA, obviously, being the most obvious one, but even yeah. stuff like you know, mobile phones. It's like you get pinged oh, by mobile phone masks So, it, the, if you you know, you have to explain to the reader why that hasn't been used as evidence or whatever, or the, or the fact uh, that they've investigated that and that there's a reason why that's you know they've drawn a blank yeah. with that and. Whereas I think it, you get more of a kind of a wider canvas because of when it's precisely when it's set. Yeah, you,
0: you can cheat a bit. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You don't have I mean, if you watch *Line of Duty*, which is obviously fantastic, like you're sort of bewildered by the, you know, the, the apparatus of the police and and in that program it works really well. But you know, all that stuff about evidence and you am know, just like, my God, this stuff takes so much working out, and I just can't create it. You know, so um, or I could not do it. You know, so. It's, put it in the 70s, it then sort of becomes, as I said, a bit more of the private eyes. One guy, really, investigating the thing, you know, God's the only man, is kind of investigating the crime more than a huge police force, you
1: know. Just finally, there's four, four Harry McCoy books out. Next Endeavor, when does it come out?
0: Oh, it comes out in May. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I like finish the bloody thing at Wembley, but um, yeah, it's
1: uh, I'm writing it just now, so in theory it's supposed to be done months over. So then it comes out. In Alan, it's somewhere in the seventies in temperature, so I'm going to let you go and get <laughs> an get a nice slowly in a a, sh- a shaded room, but I just yeah. want to see how much i have enjoyed this. It's been brilliant. No, it's been good. Work. Thanks very much for putting me up. <laughs> So, here you have it. Alan Parks, a gracious man and a great crime writer. Wasn't that brilliant? That bit when he said that he uses compelling settings as starting blocks for the plot. What an amazing insight into the way he works. If you haven't read the Harry McCoy books yet, then buy them. You'll love them. And if you want to take a trip to the other end of the Glasgow gumshoe spectrum with my more genteel Leo Moran... Don't worry, it's not too cosy. There's more than a dash of the Scottish Gothic thrown in. Then the next in the series is out on September the 16th. It's called The Mystery of the Strange Piper and it is published by Backpage Press. Thanks again to Alan and thanks to my talented brother Michael for the beautiful music. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.